Morning, everyone. How are you guys this morning? All right, so before I start, can I ask for a little extra grace this morning? I was just sitting down here a few minutes ago, and I was reading through my notes, and I realized I usually, uh, my doc- eye doctor has been telling me for years that I need to get reading glasses, so I usually print 16-point font, and I forgot to do that this morning, so bear with me as I um, read my 12-point font here with any uh, any help. So anyway, this morning, we are going to take a look at uh, a part of a letter written uh, by the Apostle Paul to uh, Timothy, who was a young man that Paul had taken under his wing. He had mentored him, taught him, trained him, and then released him to ministry in Ephesus. And so if you'd like to follow along, in a, if you have your own Bible, great. If you don't, there are Bibles in the chair racks in front of you, and you can find 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 17 on page 1192. So before you read this, you really have to uh, you understand that this is not really going to be your traditional kind of Christmas text. Um, in fact, as we read it together, you may wonder, How in the world did Steve pick this text in relation to Christmas? Well, the short answer is you're going to have to trust me and uh, that I think as we work our way through it, you will see the Christmas uh, connection. So let's take a read together, all right? I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, before we start digging into uh, the text of this passage, I want to take a f- uh, first back up and take a look at who the Apostle Paul was. In fact, the first mention of Paul uh, we read is his name actually was Saul at the time, and it's in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, it opens up with, uh, with Jesus uh, just um, uh, ascending to heaven 40 days after his, as, after his resurrection. And Jesus then calls his followers to be his witnesses locally, regionally, and globally. And we see Jesus' apostles in the church. They were gathering to pray often and they were doing life together. It describes an early church that was really just forming and they weren't necessarily organized. Peter and John went out and they taught about Jesus. They taught about his life, his death, his resurrection, and the reason for all of it. And we read how God poured out the Holy Spirit onto the early church. It shows people accepting the message of gospel, believing in Jesus, people being healed, people being changed, all because of the boldness of the church and the power of the Holy Spirit. But just as we read in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not everybody was really on board with this kind of new Jesus movement. There was a religious group called the Pharisees, and they were a group who had set themselves apart. They even really elevated themselves above the rest of the Jewish people. And the Pharisees, they were a dominant party in in Judaism, and they were aligned based on strict adherence to things like purity, tithing, and the Sabbath rules of Judaism. And they were relentless in trying to observe and propagate observance to all the do's and the don'ts that Jewish law demanded. And so Jesus comes on the scenes, and the Pharisees, they weren't really on board with his message of grace. In fact, in many respects, the Pharisees' beliefs were almost polar opposite to Jesus' teaching. While Jesus taught that salvation, forgiveness, and eternal life were possible only by simply believing that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. The Pharisees demanded that obeying every aspect of Jewish law was the only possible way to please God and therefore earn God's acceptance. 
And although there are a few exceptions, most of the Pharisees were dead set against Jesus and his teaching. They were dead set against the early church and against the spread of Christianity. So Paul, Saul at the time, he was a Pharisee and he was a really good and devout one at that. And actually he was one of the chief persecutors of the early church. And so we're first introduced to him in Acts uh, chapter 7 verse 58. And it's in the context of the first Christian martyr named Stephen. The religious authorities, which evidently included Saul at the time, they had sentenced Stephen to death. And so we read this. They were yelling at the top of their voices, and they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And from that time on, we see Saul actively persecuting the church. And let me tell you, you know, when I read the word persecuting, I kind of think of what people calling somebody names, right? I mean, what kind of persecution have we really ever suffered for being a Christian? Maybe some people think we're a little weird. Maybe they've joked about us a little bit. Maybe some people just avoid us. More than likely, if we've lived in the United States our whole lives, we've really never had uh, experienced Christian persecution. But let me tell you, Christian persecution in those days was far from name-calling. We see Christians in the early church, they were beaten, imprisoned, tortured, and killed. And Saul was actively involved in that. In Acts 8.3, we're told, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Acts 9.1 says that, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, he's referring to Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now before we throw Saul under the bus, or call him a fool, or just a plain mean guy, we need to realize that the reason he was doing all this was because he thought he was actually defending the name and the honor of God. Because remember, the Pharisees were considered among the most righteous. They were well-respected in the Jewish community. And Paul honestly thought that Christians were in the wrong, that they were defaming and dishonoring God's name. And so he did what he felt needed to be done to make sure the Christian movement was stopped in its tracks. But then a funny thing happened. As Paul was taking the high priest's letter to the synagogue in Damascus, something really unexpected happened. Check it out. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what to do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They had heard the sound but didn't see anyone. So Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now let's stop and think about that for a second. Can you imagine? You're Saul, right? You're on this, on this crusade of sorts. You're on the war path. You got your posse with you, and you're headed to go to take some more Christians captive, right? And all of a sudden, bam, Jesus knocks you down and starts talking to you. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never had that kind of experience. I do know some people who have described a kind of Damascus Road type of experience, but, but not quite to this extreme. And so Saul gets up, he's instructed to find a man named Ananias. And Jesus had also spoken to Ananias as well. And he he tells him what he's got to do with Saul. Now, Ananias is freaked out because Saul's reputation is, is everywhere. It's preceded him. And so he's thinking that Jesus is sending him to his death or at best maybe imprisonment. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, and placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, 
he regained his strength. And next thing we see, Paul, he was preaching the gospel of grace. He was preaching about Jesus, about salvation that is only available through a personal relationship with Jesus. And so guess what? The guy who was out persecuting, he was sent by the religious leaders. Now those Jewish leaders, they, they go and they put a hit out on Saul. Right? The very guy is now, that was, who was persecuting is now the most wanted right, on the Jewish hit list and preaching about Jesus. I mean, wouldn't that make like a great soap opera? Like a made-for-TV movie or something. It's um, uh, almost unbelievable. But then we hear about Saul again. He's renamed to Paul now and is continuing his ministry to the Gentiles or the non-Jewish folks. And as Paul continues his ministry, he's persecuted. He's locked up, he's beaten, he's shipwrecked, and he appears many times before the religious rulers. In fact, in, in ad ad addressing a group of the religious rulers called the Sanhedrin, he says this, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another and have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. And then he tells the Sanhedrin the story of his Damascus Road experience. And, and the Sanhedrin, they think he's crazy or lost his mind. But instead, Paul says, no, I'm not. Let me tell you what Jesus told me directly. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So this gives us a little better picture, I think, of Paul or Saul, of his confrontation with Jesus and the change that he's experienced and then this new mission that he's been sent on. Steve King's summary is, uh, is Saul is a Pharisee. He's bent on destroying the Christian movement, right? He's one bad guy. He's imprisoning, executing Christians far and wide. Jesus knocks some sense into him, gives him a new mission, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, sends him on a new life of Christian ministry. So with that in mind, then, let's take a look at this text. So Paul starts verse 12 with a phrase and, and this idea uh, that is really common in his writings. He thanks God who gives him strength. In fact, the Greek literally reads, Christ who has empowered me. And Paul then says that, that God has appointed him to his service. And the Greek word for service, is a, it's a technical one that's used in the New Testament for Christian ministry. So Paul knows that he's been called by God into Christian ministry. And Paul is never one to forget where he came from. So in, in 13, verse 13, he acknowledges, he said, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. But then he articulates that he was shown the mercy of Jesus. He acknowledges that because of the seriousness of his actions, that God's mercy had to be poured out abundantly. But it was more than mercy that Paul received from God. He also received the grace of God poured out on him, along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This is another one of those, the, the apostles' great kind of triads that he uses, right? Grace provided his salvation. Faith helped him appropriate it. And then love applied that grace. And this reminds me of Paul's writing when he's writing to the church in Ephesus. He says this, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. So it appears that the salvation that God gives seems to include this gift of faith itself. Now in verse 15, Paul continues by placing emphasis on what he's about to say. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. In other words, he said, hey, you can take this one to the bank. This is really important. Then he continues with what is really the essence or the very core of the message of Christianity. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In one short sentence, he boils down the whole reason that we celebrate Christmas. Jesus came into this world as a baby, took the form of a human for what purpose? To save sinners. 
And instead of going on with a long theology, instead of trying to argue people into accepting the message of grace, he points to the evidence in his own life of the power of Jesus. He says this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now, do you ever get stressed out thinking about the idea or when you hear the word evangelism? I mean, do you ever worry that maybe you have to argue the merits of Jesus or the theology explaining it all? Do you ever worry that if you don't know enough or have enough knowledge or you're not articulate enough that people won't become Christians? I've been there. But let me help you take some of the stress off. Be like Paul. You might say, well, how can I be like Paul, right? He was an apostle, a leader in the early church. He was knocked loopy personally by Jesus and given the Holy Spirit. But I would say if you're a Christian, then you have access to that same power of God through his Holy Spirit. And I would tell you again, do what Paul does. Yeah, I mean, there are times where Paul is eloquent. He argued Jewish tradition of the law and compared and contrasted the grace that's found in Christ. But in this case, he doesn't argue anyone into anything. He simply lays out his own personal story of Jesus working in his life. And that is something that each of us can do, right? It should be natural and instinctive because it's our story. And there's nobody that can argue with our story. So be ready. Tell people about what God has done in your life. You know, as I prayed and I studied and I prepared for this week, this text, it it, it forced me to look at my own messed up wayward past. Just as Paul says, the things that he used to be, it forced me to relive a lot of really nastiness in my life. And so in a lot of ways, I can completely relate to Paul. I mean, I've never sentenced anyone to death or I've never done that, but, but I've done some pretty bad things, many things I'm not proud of. And so that phrase he uses, sinners, of whom I'm the worst, there are many times I've thought of myself and I still do think of myself the same way. You know, uh, Facebook is a funny thing. Have you ever gotten on Facebook and, and you run into some old friends, maybe from your old school days or your old neighborhood, old jobs, college days, or maybe just from a time in life that frankly you'd rather just forget about. I can't tell you how many people that I've connected with from my kind of old life, my pre-Christian life, and they start reading down my information and they get to the part where it says I'm a pastor working at a church. And after knowing me only for the way that I lived back then, I can see why they would struggle to believe it. I don't know how many notes and how many notes of explanation I've had to give to people. And sometimes I still have a hard time believing it. You know, a few years ago, a really good friend of mine, a fellow musician, former recording studio partner, and one of the best joke tellers uh, that I've ever known, he died unexpectedly of a heart attack. And we held the memorial service here, and and I gave the devotional message uh, during that. Now, unknown to me, a friend of mine from my old life was sitting in these very chairs. And evidently, he, uh, he sat there through a lot of the service, and instead of trying to follow along with the memorial service, he sat there wondering what had happened to me. I mean, he couldn't wrap his head around the fact, not that I was just, I was a Christian, but I was standing here delivering a devotional. And so he walked up afterward, he gave me a hug, and he's like, uh, when did all this happen? And so I thought he was talking about my friend Charlie, who had died. And so I started, he said, no, no, no. He said, when did this happen? Meaning, when did I become a Christian, and who in the world would hire me on a church staff? But as I look at it, I can relate to Paul, right? With Paul, the power of God was demonstrated in a, in a kind of a crazy and a public way. And people had a hard time wrapping their heads around the sudden change in Paul as he went from being the chief persecutor to the chief apostle to the Gentiles. And when I look at the person that I was and who I am now in Christ, there's a remarkable change. No, I've not arrived. No, I'm not perfect, but I am changed. The power of God, it's an amazingly powerful thing. As a staff member, one of the favorite parts of my job is to get to hear about life change that people experience 
than knowing God. And a while back on a Sunday morning, we did something, we, we called it cardboard testimonies. And it's this thing where we collected a number of stories, 20 of them uh, for this thing, of, of life change, of change that has happened because of God's obvious power in someone's life. And so we had a two-sided piece of cardboard, and on one side, they would write on there a real quick story of, here's my old life. And on the other side of it, they would say, but this is my new life. And so as they walked out on the stage, they showed, walked out with their old life story, got up to the front and flipped the board over and said, but this is my new life because of the power of Christ. There was a guy who chased money in a career, and he had all the great things in life but he was rotting inside. But Jesus gave him joy and peace for the first time ever. We had a guy who hated his dad for 30 years, but God had changed him and showed him how to reconcile with and love his dad. There was a young woman whose life was filled with abuse, darkness, and hopelessness, but Jesus gave her peace and hope for a future. One guy served himself drugs and alcohol. Now he serves God and others. A woman experienced pain and heartache from broken relationships. Then she was experiencing a loving marriage. A woman's husband had left, and she was scared, alone, and hopeless, but God showed her true hope and true love. A young man was angry and suicidal, but Jesus saved him from himself and from suicide. Another guy was shackled by alcoholism, but the grace of Jesus set him free. It was one of the most powerful moments I've ever experienced in my 13 years as part of this church. To see the dramatic rescue and change that people experienced, man, that totally fired me up. I mean, the place went crazy with each person who shared their story about the rescue and the change from God. And I continue to hear similar stories just like those. And this is exactly what Paul was doing in this text, right? He first credits God with doing the real work. But then he uses his own life experience to point out just how incredible that power and that it is available to each and every one of us who would accept that free gift. Paul said that of all sinners, he was the absolute worst. As a strict Pharisee, young Saul had lived a life, it was blameless before Jewish law. But in his case as chief sinner, Christ's unlimited patience had been displayed as an example to all who would believe in Jesus and therefore receive eternal life. Paul's life was a powerful demonstration of divine grace. And so what was Paul's response to that divine grace? Check out verse 17. He says, Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I mean, it's fitting that he closes this section with praise for his Savior. When Paul realizes the incredible change brought about him uh, by God and him, he can't do anything else but just explode with honor and praise to the God who had rescued him from his ignorance and brought him into a life of belief and to eternal life. And as I look around this morning, there are many, many, many more stories just like those we had in our cardboard testimonies. Every person sitting in this room today has a story. Sure, each story is different, and, and in some, a lot of cases, we're all in different places of that journey of that story that we're in. But know this, we will never, ever be good enough to earn God's favor on our own. It's only through the grace of God that's offered through a relationship with Jesus Christ that will earn us God's eternal favor. It's a gift of grace from a merciful and loving Father in heaven, and it's free. The best Christmas gift that ever came arrived in the form of a baby, and all you have to do is be willing to accept that gift. Apostle Paul says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He also came to set each of us free from our guilt, from our shame, and from all the junk that we carry around. And so whether or not you call yourself a Christian, a follower of Christ this morning, the truth is this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save you. And if you've already accepted this free Christmas gift, then be sure to celebrate and share that gift 
as often as you can. And if you're here today and, and maybe you don't know what to think about this Christmas gift of Jesus, I'm glad that you're here. Keep coming back. Keep asking questions. But at the end of the day, my hope and my Christmas prayer for you is that you will indeed answer Jesus' invitation to you to accept him as your personal Savior, that you would accept and celebrate and then share the best Christmas gift the world has ever known. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for those words of the Apostle Paul. You know, sometimes it's so easy to look at the apostles and to elevate them, to almost make them seem a little bit superhuman or above everyone else or, um, or in places even that are unattainable for us to reach. But Paul so clearly lays out here that he is just messed up as we are. And Lord, in that, I find hope. That someone who was used so powerfully by God, who was changed so powerfully by God, that if it can happen to him, then it can happen to me. And it can happen to each of us in this room. Lord, I thank you for that gift. And Lord, if we're in a place this morning where uh, we've accepted the gift, but maybe we're just not that excited about celebrating it, would you bring to mind, the, uh, remind us, of the change that you have made in our life. Remind us of, of the remarkable old life versus new life. Remind us that with new life comes eternal life. And Lord, that you were born so that we can receive that. And in that, we should celebrate this morning. Help us to celebrate that. Help us to celebrate the real meaning of Christmas. Remind us of your love and your grace that was poured out abundantly on each of us in Christ Jesus. And it's his precious name that we pray. Amen.